Hello! Welcome back to the Keswick Convention Podcast. I'm Rachel Redeemed, and usually I'd be joined by James Carey, but I have Matt Holden with us. Welcome, Matt. Thank you, Rachel. Yeah, my name is Matt, and I am the Keswick Youth and Kids Leader, uh, Ministry Leader, and I've been doing this role now for nearly two years, and I'm excited to be here and part of the podcast. You've been our guy in the chair going off speaking with other people so far in the podcast. What are we looking at this week? Well, we're thinking about the topic of Jesus's humanity and his divinity. It's a topic that's always fascinated me. It's something that scholars and saints of old have grappled with. So it must be an important topic, even if I think sometimes it feels a bit removed and a little bit academic. But I think our guest today make it clear why it's so important for every Christian. Mm. Who have we got up first? We are now joining James Carey as he speaks to Sam Albury, who we spoke to in a previous episode, who is a pastor and author. Great, let's jump in. John, the apostle, the writer of the gospel and the letters, seems really big on incarnation. Uh, the eternal one outside time becoming human and mortal. W- why do you think he does that? What is what is that teaching us? Uh, and in particular, how is 1 John teaching us that? Yeah, it's a big theme, um, particularly in the letters where John makes it very clear if we're not on board with Jesus becoming fully human, then actually we've misunderstood everything. So it's kind of foundational for him. And I think one of the things it means is that as we start to follow this Jesus who became fully man, we we regain our humanity. Um, There's there's a genuine, unique humaneness to to what Jesus has for us. So as we we come into fellowship with him, as we follow him, as we love as he loved, as we obey his commands, we're actually beginning to fulfill our own humanity. We're becoming more the human beings we were always meant to be. So there's a there's a lovely sense in which I will not I will never be more truly Sam Mulberry than when I'm following Jesus. And what is it about Jesus in particular when you, and this is a very much a personal thing when you read Jesus Jesus's life on the page of the gospels what is it that is really striking or challenging to you? Yeah, I think the thing that strikes me is he you read the gospel accounts and he is a man like no other. He really is a man. He gets tired, he walks around, he, he needs food, he gets thirsty, but he's a man like no other. And in every single interaction with anybody, he's he's showing us just something utterly beautiful. We see the, the kind of beauty of his character, the beauty of his ways. There's no other human who's ever lived like he has. And so that's the thing I keep coming back to. There's something captivating about him, which just keeps drawing us further back back to him. Yeah. I mean, this is a big one, but and the church have been wrestling with this for a while. But how is it that Jesus is 100 percent man and 100 percent God? Uh, one plus one equals one. Should we just sort of get over that? H- how would you answer that kind of question? Yeah, I would say it's a it's a good question to think about. I, I don't think it's a wise question to worry about because clearly okay. he's better at this kind of thing than we are. So let, let's just revel in the fact that he has and be fully assured that he has. And if he, if he wasn't fully divine or if he wasn't fully human, both at the same time, we wouldn't be here talking about it. So I know I need him to be fully both. I need him to be a real man like any of anyone else. But I need him to be fully divine in order to, to take my place and to, to justify me. So 
I can scratch my head and, and wonder at it, but um, I think it's healthier for me to marvel at it than for me to to feel concerned that I can't fully wrap my head around it. I'll leave that in, in his department. I can feel confident that he was fully man, fully human. Well, still is. <laughs> fully man, fully, yeah. fully God. I, I don't need convincing on that front. I'm convinced of it. I don't need to fully understand it. Yeah, that's really interesting. You mentioned that he still is fully human, and that's one thing I guess we we disregard. And the great moment of salvation history that we've really neglected uh, is the ascension, that Jesus bodily ascends into heaven. Yeah. <laughs> what? what? What's yeah. happening there? What? Because what we're saying is that Jesus is somewhere in the universe and he's fully human. Yes. What are we to make of his physical ascension into heaven what is that giving us that we're missing out on if we if we ignore it yeah well it in one sense it's the completion of his earthly ministry um he needed to rescind uh, to return he needed to ascend um we we can go with him through the curtain because he has ascended so we are seated in colossians and ephesians language we're seated with him at the right hand of the father him being there means that in him we are also there spiritually and it just reminds us that, that Jesus didn't become man as a kind of temporary expedient. He, he fully united himself to human nature permanently, which means we can be assured that our union with him is, is equally permanent. So it's very significant. I think it was, was Tom Wright who used the phrase that when Jesus ascended, he didn't jettison his humanity like booster rockets. <laughs> so with the ascension, it, it's as important to know what isn't happening as what is happening. Mm. Um, and it's not that he floats up just as a spirit, but he he physically ascends. And that that ongoing physicality of Jesus speaks to us of the eternality of our own physical resurrection. When that day comes, we will be forever resurrected as he is forever resurrected. Yeah. And I guess if he is the force, firstborn of the new creation, for him to then be unborn in some way would be would be very strange, wouldn't it? But that, yeah. that's really that's really helpful. There's also a whole Elijah thing going on with the ascension, isn't there? Because I guess Elijah bodily ascends into heaven in some way. One of my uh, pet peeves is that we don't tell teenagers all of these amazing stories, whereas if you told a, you know, 13 year old boy oh by the way Elijah ascends into heaven in a chariot made of fire it's like okay you now have my full attention yes <laughs> <laughs> I think we're missing out there but how can this uh, doctrine of Christ's humanity be good news for our evangelism how, how can we make the most of this in trying to uh, tell others our friends and neighbours and colleagues about the good news of Jesus Christ yeah, we can we can invite them into a relationship with a savior who fully understands us. He's walked on this soil, he's lived in this world, he's experienced far more than we ever will the, the full extremes of of hardship in this world. And so in in a way far greater than anyone else, he gets it. He really does get it. And I, I know it comforts me anytime I'm going through difficulty to think that there's no there's no category of suffering Jesus doesn't know better than me, which makes him a sympathetic saviour. We we can pray to him. We can come to him. He will understand us. Hebrews, uh, I think it's Hebrews 2 or 4, I can't remember, which says he's not unable to sympathise. So it is a comfort. And I think it, it's good for our, our friends who are maybe thinking about the Christian faith to, to realise Jesus has been here. 
and lived in this world and knows knows better than they do what they're going through. Um, It makes him, in one sense, more accessible. And yet, as we see how he lived in this world, we suddenly realize he really is not like the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. It's an aspect of the gospel that really resonates with the 21st century, isn't it? I'm sure throughout history, different aspects of uh, of the doctrine of, of Christ have resonated in different ways. But this is a really 21st century. Does Jesus really understand? Does he get me? Has yeah. he been there? Has he done it? We are a, a nation crying out for, for empathy. And actually, although yeah. you mentioned sympathy, the idea of empathy is that you sort of you dive in with someone into the into the pool rather than stand on the side. And actually, Jesus dives in in an empathetic way doesn't he he does he does and it makes it makes all the difference and we live in a very anxious age so to know that he experienced distress Mm. himself um the agony of gethsemane again it it means he's in one this is the there's a better word for it than this but he's relatable Mm. yeah (laughs) in the the deepest truest sense he is yeah that he knows these things better than we do yeah and even though he knows the future, as it were, he's when when he is with Lazarus, uh, when Lazarus is in the tomb, there's that visceral response of of pain and grief, isn't it? Mm. It's extraordinary that that he should he should feel that. Yes, he should grieve the one he knows he's about to raise. Yeah, but he he's not just grieving the loss of Lazarus; he's grieving the grief of the yeah. people around him. He's stepping into it. Thank you to Jam and Sam for those deep thoughts. We're going to stick with Jam as he continues his conversation with Matthew Mason. Now, you may remember him from earlier in the series. He is a many hat wearer, including the hat that says Tutor in Christian Ethics at the Pastors Academy, and that he's the director of Crosslands Cultivate, among other things. And Jam starts with a fairly bold question. So, Matthew, we'll start with the title of this episode, which may seem like a curious question to ask, but curious questions often give interesting answers. Is that could Jesus have sinned? I mean, it feel, maybe it feels like Jesus had a special, special power, a special way to resist temptation. Do you want to say a bit about how his humanity and his lack of sin works? I mean, the, the short answer to the question, I think, is no. This is a debated question. Um, but but I think the answer is no, Jesus could not have sinned, but that does not mean he was not tempted. And so, I mean, the key, the key question for us experientially is to know, as Hebrews 4 tells us, that he was tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. And both of those things are important, that he was tempted, but without sin. No, he couldn't have sinned because of who he was, because in the end, we're asking, could the divine son of God have sinned? Um, And that's impossible. It's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to do anything evil. So actually, it's really good news for us that Jesus couldn't have sinned because it means God is not in any danger of doing anything wicked. Mm. Um, On the other hand, that doesn't mean he couldn't be tempted. And we know from the Bible that he was. So you look at Matthew 4 and you see him in the wilderness being tempted by Satan after 40 days of fasting. And I take it he was he was tempted 
in a way that goes far beyond my experience of temptation. So I don't think we should think Jesus therefore just had this sort of like flickering kind of, oh, that's a little bit like a temptation kind of experience. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, there are loud cries and tears. He's longing to escape the cross. And he's sweating blood. I've never sweated blood when I've been tempted. (laughs) Uh, And Jesus did. I mean, is it that we've basically watched an awful lot of movies and in the movie, the hero has to resist. And we, because of our desire for jeopardy, and that's kind of how stories work, we therefore think if Jesus had bowed down to worship Satan, if Jesus had turned those stones to bread, then all would have been lost and the universe would have been without hope. So we, we've sort of maybe injected this jeopardy into the gospel story that maybe isn't there. Is, is there anything in that? Yeah, that might be right. It's interesting that the question of could Jesus have sinned was it potentially possible becomes a live question as i understand it in like the 19th century i'm not sure it's really a hugely live question before that and so uh, as our understanding of being a human becomes more and more psychologized and more and more driven by emotion and drama and inner angst then those questions start to be asked more about jesus Mm. and actually what we really need is someone who's resisted temptation and conquered it on our behalf Mm and a God who is utterly reliable. So I guess, I mean, I don't know what those debates that you're referring to are, but I wonder if it's so much about the humanity of Jesus that we lose his divinity. And so when we ask, what does it mean for Jesus to be 100% God and 100% man? We have such a problem understanding that for perfectly (laughs) rational, finite reasons. We think, well, God left heaven, therefore he left his divinity and became a man, and therefore he must be subject to temptation and fall and sin, whereas actually he retains his divine nature. Is that it? Yeah. So the person who's being tempted is a fully divine person who also has a human nature. He is filling heaven and earth as he's tempted. He is the eternal word of God who knows all things perfectly, even as in Luke 2, he's growing in knowledge and understanding. Um, He's the perfectly spotless God who cannot look on evil, even as as a man, Satan is saying, go on, turn these stones into bread. Hmm. We just can't get inside that. We also can't get inside the fact that one day we're never going to be tempted again. And we're not going to be less human as a result of that. We're going to be more fully ourselves. I think we have to remember that. And in some ways... I wonder, and I'm talking about myself now, if I want to think of Jesus being susceptible to temptation in exactly the same way as I am, because I want to let myself off the hook and think it's not that bad after all. We're so heavily influenced by art and and images. And I know I would say that because I'm a writer, but therefore, when we have this view of heaven and heavenly bliss, there is a sense in which it is disembodied. And so if you're watching a movie or if, if your character in a movie or an animation or a sitcom goes to heaven briefly, they are in an ethereal place where there is dry ice on the ground. We're not really people there, are we? And that's the only place where we can be without sin and temptation. It's so helpful to look forward to a real new heaven and a new earth where we will be without sin. It's really hard to hold on to that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But imagine being in a world where actually people are more beautiful and gorgeous and in that sense alluring than they ever can be in this life, but not having a flicker of lust. Mm. There'll be all kinds of extraordinary things that 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 lure us to sin now because, you know, we, we sin because we are inclined towards things that in and of themselves are quite good and lovely, but they're just they go against what God says is is right and true. But we'll never have that. I love the idea of 
being around people who are totally different from me and never again feeling annoyed with them mm. is an amazing thought. Yeah. And being around people all the time and never thinking, I just want to retreat and shut my door and be alone and never have to see anyone ever again because I'm tired of everyone. It's very hard for me to imagine. You know, it's very hard for me to imagine actually a table full of the best food and wine and not just wanting to gorge myself until I puke in a corner. <laughs> That's quite a powerful image. So looking ahead to the future is one thing, but knowing all that and knowing what we've said so far, how is that helping us now, do you think? Well, I, I think in part it's it's highlighting for us the, the unnaturalness of sin, that it's just not, it's not really who I am. Yes, I am corrupt. Yes, I, I sin and have all kinds of sinful desires, but it doesn't in the end define me. And on the days when, which are probably not, there are not enough days like this, but on the days when I utterly despair of how sinful I am, I can think that's this is not who I'm going to be forever. Mm. One day I will be free of all of this because Jesus will have set me free. Um, and I can be going back to your first question. I can be confident I'll be free of all this because that's what he was like all along. Yeah. And so part part of the way it helps me actually is I bow down and worship because I go. Not only was Jesus tempted like me, but he is so totally different from me. And so much more wonderful and holy and pure than I am. And so he deserves my adoration. Mm. Yeah. How does it help us to think about jesus before and after his resurrection in what way is humanity different or the same i mean this is i'm sure there was some fourth century heresy about this uh, that i don't know about and you would say oh well <laughs> they discussed this at a council in uh, in 526 or something but it strikes me that we are very much a tribe of the death of jesus taking our place on the cross we're very much good friday christians and we're not quite so strong on on the easter sunday uh, christian thing uh, how does Jesus' resurrection speak into this, do you think? So when thinking about Jesus' sort of life, it's, it's typical in theology to think about it in sort of two stages, what's called the state of humiliation, which is when he humbles himself and becomes a man and then goes further and becomes obedient even to death on a cross. And then his state of exaltation, when he's given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. So to think about him like that, that actually he became weak and limited and frail in lots of ways like we are without sin but now he's been raised in glory and so paul then does that with us and says in 1 corinthians 15 this mortal body will be raised immortal this this weak and perishable body will be raised imperishable so there'll be a wonderful transformation where actually our experience of frailty and weakness and suffering now will be massively transformed so that we're like the Lord Jesus. And even now, I think it just helps us to think Jesus is already enthroned and reigning. So he, he has done his suffering and dying, and now he is reigning and filling the world with disciples. And I, in that sense, it should give us both confidence in our own future and anticipation, but also confidence in what Jesus is now doing in the world as the risen king. And how do you think this helps us this doctrine of jesus humanity how does this help us in our evangelism do you think there's a poem i don't know when it's from but it's like maybe from the 19th century looking at the fall of the pagan gods and the growth of christianity that begins thou hast conquered O gray galilean and the world has grown pale at thy breath 
And this idea that actually, again, you have you have these kind of stained glass window Jesuses who are sort of bloodless and unattractive. And to recognize here was a man who lived a very ordinary life and laughed with his friends and enjoyed the beauty of creation and and all the goodness actually you look you look on the pages of the gospels and you just have a very colorful human being mm. and so part of it is just commending yes his greatness as god but just what an attractive person he is and that actually the the christian offer is that we will be made like him mm. so we can inhabit our humanity in true and wholesome and lovely ways that will actually be more enriching and more fulfilling and more liberating rather than suppressing the really interesting human bits of us. Mm. Yeah. So it's an offer that we become more human, not less. That's really helpful as well, because although many of us would start with that Jesus, as I hinted earlier, Jesus is a cure for our sins and our souls and for our guilt. And of course that is true. But there, there is a man-centeredness to that, isn't it? It's explaining to someone that they've got a problem and uh, that you have the cure for it. It's someone with a disease and they don't realise. And then you say, it's OK, here is the medicine. Whereas actually, this is a, a really Christ-centred evangel in another way, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Another way of doing it is to go, do you know, God thinks humans are so brilliant, not just because he made them, but because it was always his intention to become one of us. I mean, that, that's how brilliant being a human is. That's how brilliant having a body is. So John Paul II in, in his book, Theology of the Body, says, in the incarnation, the body enters theology by the front door. We live in a world that is so conflicted about bodies and about our own bodies and what they're like and are they good or are they bad and do, can, I, can I embrace and enjoy it or not? And to be able to say, yeah, God, well, God took a body and he thinks it was flipping marvellous mm. is an extraordinary thing. And I'm going to congratulate you on being the first person to quote Pope John Paul II on the Keswick Convention podcast. I thought, I thought I'd get it in there, yeah. Congratulations to you. Now we have Ben Cooper, the Deputy Director of Cornhill, and he catches up with Rachel, continuing the conversation about Jesus, humanity and his divinity. get this wrong if we don't get the 100% divine 100% human what do we miss well the whole thing kind of just falls to pieces I think if it's not fully part of that divine initiative then that whole expectation that we've got from the old testament that this is going to be God personally intervening he's going to be the one who makes that makes the difference um, all of that would be lost and of course one of the big purposes of in all of creation and in all of history is to show his his fullest and greatest character. So it's very important that it's his initiative. It's not some kind of joint effort. If we didn't have the fully human side of stuff, it wouldn't really kind of connect to the problem. He shares and expresses a full human identity. Otherwise, we can't identify with him. You know, we don't have that connection, which means that we can't then share in this new humanity that he's bringing about. We can't share in what he's done to to deal with the, the brokenness of humanity. 
I remember from a struggle with a physics AS level, something about light travelling in particles and light travelling in waves. I don't know if that is a helpful picture to put 100% of human and 100% of God together. There's an analogy there that I think that is quite helpful in that, um, you know, we are encouraged to look at things from different perspectives. Uh, and in particular, sometimes in the scriptures, we're given, a, if you like, a God's eye view of things. And uh, we're sort of um, helped to see things from, from God, God's perspective, so far as that's possible for us. There's always going to be a bit of mystery there, because obviously, you know, we're not God. But he sort of draws us into that kind of divine perspective on things. So that's one perspective. And we can look at Jesus, if you like, that way. This is uh, God's personal testimony. I am taking on flesh, you know, so there's that, that perspective of things. But then there's the other perspective as, as well, which is the perspective of, of, of a human who lives in, in the midst of history and, and uh, you know, on the ground, observing things, reading things, um, looking at evidence, those kinds of things. That's, that's another perspective. When the disciples encountered him in the first century, when it, we encounter him through the, through the pages of scripture, it's basically an encounter with uh, another human. You know, that's that's first and foremost what's what's going on. So, yeah, the, the, the kind of two perspectives on on things is, is, I think, quite quite a helpful way of kind of reconciling things that otherwise are very, very mysterious. Thinking through what it means for Jesus to have not been able to sin what does that mean for us today, for our heads, our hearts and our hands? I mean, one consequence of this, I think it, it requires um, sort of rethinking what we think about about freedom. So I suppose that's one of the issues here. So we, we say, OK, Jesus couldn't have sinned, especially from a divine perspective. There's no way that he could have not followed through in what he set himself to do. And uh, we sort of think about that as, as saying, well, that doesn't doesn't that mean his freedom is somehow constrained and that doesn't feel right to us either part of how we engage with this then is actually delighting in the in, in the fact that as jesus was doing these things again it's expressing truly what it means to be a human including what it truly means to be free so it's not constrained in a wrong way in fact it's unconstrained because now he is he's the one who has the the ability to do the right thing in a way that humanity has lost because of the, the fall. He's recovering to do the right thing. It is a freedom. And it's not a constraining freedom either. I think, um, so Oliver O'Donovan, who you know, writes on Christian ethics and things like that, I think is hugely helpful on this, on this topic, that, that true freedom is, is, um, it is that thing about being free to do the right thing. But it's also by no means uh, a fatalistic or constrained thing. There's a there's creativity and possibility, and all sorts of flexibility in how that can work out, and uh, you see that right at the beginning of the, of the scriptures in the in the garden. Um, the man and the woman in the garden are not being micromanaged as to what they can plant where and how they go about their gardening task, and you know what 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 flowers they're going to choose and what kind of fruit and stuff like that. There's enormous freedom. Uh, uh, what that how they're going to express being being human that's true freedom and it, it's marvelous and it's creative and it's wonderful and it's not it's not stained by the possibility of breaking away from god this is something that we can uh delight in when it comes 
comes to our hope in the future. Um, the, the kind of freedom that, that Jesus has is something that uh, by faith we can sort of um, become a part of now. In the new heavens and the new earth, that will be the, if you like, the physical reality, the day-to-day -day reality of life. They will have that kind of freedom. And, uh, you know, that's going to be uh, a new cosmos that won't be, won't be tainted by uh, the possibility of sin. That's a marvellous thing to, to hope in and to look forward to uh, and to start to express now. You know, so how do you express your freedom now truly? We well, certainly don't do it by by sinning or even contemplating sinning. That's off track. That's not true freedom. That will lead you to slavery. But in terms of uh, the true direction, there's real creativity. There's millions of possibilities when it comes to all these kinds of things of being truly human. That's true freedom. And that's, in a sense, what we've been saved for. Um, as Paul puts it, this is kind of benign form of slavery. You know, you're slaves to righteousness now, which which is just great because this is a kind of slavery where your master is more loving than you can possibly imagine. And um, he gives you more than you could possibly imagine. And all the possibilities of being human are, are more than you could possibly imagine. And it's, it's just something to delight in and be so excited about. If my brain was a chipboard, it would be smoking. The 100% human, 100% God stuff is wonderful to look into, but it, it does boggle the brain. Tell me, Matt, what is something that you have taken away from what we've heard today? I think one amazing thing is the thought of Jesus's humanity and how, how that's a wonderful thing. Jesus, as our great high priest, is someone, is one who's sympathetic to our weakness. He's experienced our humanity. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be thirsty and hungry, to be betrayed, uh, to see loved ones die. And I think it makes Jesus so approachable as our saviour. Jesus has gone through what we've gone through, yet we can come to him and find grace and comfort and peace and joy. And I think that just makes Jesus an amazing saviour. Mm, I love that, that it's not just sympathy. Uh, Jan was talking about that, where it's, it's, it's actually empathy. He really knows. He gets it. I was struck by how in the ascension that Jesus hasn't lost his humanity. It's not that he's kind of something else somewhere else now. He's human still. I think that's really assuring and helpful when we're struggling and when we don't know how to do things or, you know, suffering or jobs or relationships or just life we've got a savior who is who is human and who's navigated that and we can pray to him and we can ask him for help to do those things that we're struggling with because he has he has done it and he is still a human um praise the lord praise the lord that's all from us this week it has been a pleasure to be with you thank you so much matt thank you to jam as well and we'll see you all in the next episode goodbye see you next time enjoying this podcast be sure to check out the other keswick ministries resources freely available for you and your church online catch up on keswick convention talks through our kes talks podcast 
Download study guides for small groups based on convention seminars. Browse books and daily devotionals and much more by visiting keswickministries.org.